This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Saturday, January 4th, 2020. On this day in 1990, Charles Stewart, a Boston man suspected of killing his pregnant wife, committed suicide by jumping off the Tobin Bridge into the piercing cold of the Mystic River. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the suicide of Charles Stewart, a 30-year-old suspected murderer who jumped from a Boston suspension bridge into the Mystic River. Let's go back to the outskirts of the city in the early hours of January 4th, 1990. Thirty-year-old Charles Stewart's heart was beating rapidly as he unlocked the door of his brand-new Nissan Maxima. His hands trembled. January in Massachusetts was brutal, and these pre-dawn hours were frigid. He slid behind the wheel and eased out of the Braintree Sheraton parking lot. It was just after 5 a.m. Then he headed north settling in for the 40-minute ride to the Tobin Bridge. By the time Charles reached the suspension bridge, the chill was more bitter than ever. He pulled his car over to the edge of the lower level. He flicked on the hazard lights before turning to the passenger seat, where he placed a note for whoever would find the abandoned Maxima. And before exiting the vehicle, he took one last measure, popping the hood. Lights blinking and steam still hissing off the warm engine, the car was a beacon in the cold Boston morning. It couldn't be missed, and it flagged that what Charles would do next warranted attention. As the 30-year-old furrier climbed between the murky green trusses of the Tobin Bridge, the events of the past two months washed over him. His wife, Carol Stewart, had been shot fatally in the head in October of 1989. On the evening of the 23rd, the couple was leaving a Lamaze class in preparation for the birth of their child. Then, a six-foot-tall black gunman had entered their vehicle, forcing them to drive to Mission Hill before robbing and shooting the couple. At least, that's what Charles claimed when he dialed 911 on his car phone reporting that he and Carol had both been shot. The two were rushed to the hospital. Charles survived, but his wife and unborn child did not. Carol died early the next morning, October 24th. Her son was delivered shortly after by C-section, but after 17 days on life support, the newborn passed too. The compound loss was tragic, and yet Charles appeared to start healing quickly, 
both physically and emotionally. He'd been out shopping. He even bought a brand new Nissan. But Charles wasn't really on the mend. He was desperate, and the suffocating anxiety of his dark secret led him to the Tobin Bridge the morning of January 4, 1990. Intense pressure had built up over the two and a half months since the shooting. Charles' stomach wound had barely healed before investigators started to wonder if Charles was lying about what happened the October night he was shot. They were especially curious about his relationship with Deborah Allen, a young woman who worked with Charles at the Furrier. Before the shooting, they'd been dining together and communicating outside of work. She called him routinely when he was recovering in the hospital, and he attempted to pursue the relationship after he was discharged in December. It had all blown up in his face. Reporters, investigators, and everyone following the Boston News demanded to know why, barely a month after his wife's tragic death, Charles appeared to be courting another woman. He'd even purchased expensive jewelry with Deborah in mind, but she had cut ties in December, so they went ungifted. Unrequited affection was the least of his worries, though. The police were still searching for the gun that had shot both him and his wife. And Charles' insistence that the gunman had been a black man in his 30s, around six feet tall, had grown thin. The sole suspect in custody, William Bennett, stood by his innocence and insisted he was being framed. Without anywhere else to turn, Charles edged over the steel barricade and leapt. Coming up, we'll hear how the police found Charles' body and what fueled his choice to jump that morning. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. A little before 7 a.m. on the morning of January 4, 1990, Boston police located an abandoned Nissan Maxima on the lower level of the Tobin Bridge. Shortly after, the body of 30-year-old Charles Stewart was discovered in the Mystic River. The impact from the nearly 150-foot fall had killed him. The scene marked a grisly end to an already ghastly tale, one that had spanned almost three months and inflamed racial tensions across Boston. Dozens of innocent black men and teenagers were questioned about the murder of Carol Stewart while her killer hid in plain sight. It was no coincidence that on January 3, 1990, prosecutors were finalizing their evidence for Charles Stewart's arrest, thanks to the testimony of Michael Stewart, one of Charles' younger brothers. He told his lawyer that the elder Stewart had asked for help to kill Carol back in October of 1989. Michael refused, but the plot didn't end there. 
Matthew Stewart, Charles' other younger brother, who was only 23 at the time, also came forward and revealed his own role in events following Carol's death. The night of October 23, 1990, Charles had given Matthew a designer handbag containing his wife's wallet, engagement ring, and the gun. Though it's unclear at what point that evening Matthew rendezvoused with Charles, he took the bag without asking questions. He then traveled back to his neighborhood of Revere and careened it off a bridge. Matthew's testimony reframed the investigation. Authorities quickly started looking for evidence that Charles had a motive to kill. Interviews conducted with friends dug up unsettling details. Allegedly, Carol's pregnancy was the subject of much contention. Charles wanted her to have an abortion so they could maintain their affluent lifestyle, but she refused. So it seemed Charles found a solution to avoid raising a child and get his hands on more money. He had his wife take out multiple life insurance policies, which amounted to over $180,000. Then he plotted her murder. In the wake of Carol's death, newspapers sold the events as a tragic attack on an innocent Camelot couple. But they were way off base. Charles was no prince, and he was shockingly unstable. Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Robert Coles weighed in on the case later and suggested that Charles had psychopathic tendencies. Not only had he shot his own wife and wounded himself, he'd vehemently lied to investigators. He incited a racist smear campaign to pin the crime on an innocent, and by alleging that the gunman was a black man in a striped sweatsuit, Charles sent Boston police and city officials on a wild goose chase. When William Bennett was brought in as a suspect, it was in an attempt to quiet the hysteria that surrounded the case. But the insubstantial connection between Bennett and the murder only further inflamed racial tensions around Boston. Charles died insisting he wasn't culpable, according to his suicide note. But the evidence suggests otherwise. He took deadly measures to avoid what he thought would be unhappy fatherhood and the loss of his beloved life of luxury. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler 
is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.